If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to Matthew 3. It's page 808 in the Bibles in the rows uh, in the pews. If you don't have one or one's not near you, if you just raise your hand, maybe somebody in another row can, can pass one over to you. You're welcome to, to have that if you don't have a copy. Uh, but Matthew 3, we're going to read verses 13 through 17 uh, this morning. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. They saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that your word uh, would run swiftly into our hearts. From our ears to our head to our hearts, that you would work, your spirit would be at work in us. Show us your love, the work and the love of Christ. To show us how you, God, are three in one. May we know you more today when we, just may we know you more today than we have. Guide us into your love and your grace. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, this summer, my daughter Meredith was invited to an evening revival service at a church I, I actually wasn't really at all familiar with. And so, not, not that I didn't trust her in any way, but because I wanted to be able to talk through it with her, I went as well, though separately, because she's a teenage girl, so you know that's how that had to happen. But I, I'm, I'm thankful I went, because the service was actually a, a bit beyond what I was even expecting. I was anticipating a, a bit more lively, uh, and you could say, uh, of an experience, and it, and it was that. It was a bit more lively. But the guest preacher, pretty much, not directly to me, but in his words from up front, stated that because I and Meredith and any other Orthodox believer were not saved because we believe in the Trinity, along with a few other things that apparently are missing or that we have totally wrong in our beliefs. And it was hard to be there. It was actually sad for me in many ways to see people who appeared very hungry for something substantial, for relief from sin, for hope. And yet what I heard that evening was legalism, emotionalism, and nothing that would be reassuring in any way, not, not, nothing about the grace of God. I'm convinced that what we heard that night was not only wrong, but it was actually harmful and extremely dangerous. Now why? Why do I think that? You know, they use language, if you would have just sat there, they use language about Jesus and, and salvation, so why was it so wrong? Why was it so egregious? Well, I believe at the foundational level, it not only distorted who God is, but it distorts the very nature of the gospel. The Athanasian Creed, which uh, though named the Athanasian Creed, may not actually have been by Athanasius, but from probably around the 5th century, uh, has been used in the church for centuries, states the case pretty well. Listen to a bit of it. So it says, Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. 
Anyone who does not, and, and Catholic there means the universal faith, okay? So anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. So in everything, as was said earlier, the, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity, and there was a whole bunch before this. This is the Catholic faith that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Now, rather simply and, and actually quite bluntly, this states that there is no salvation apart from believing in the Trinity. Now, that is not to say that you have to fully understand the Trinity in order to be saved. There is a mystery to it, and our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the greatness of God. But we are to believe the revelation that we have been given, that God has graciously given to us in his word. And that clearly points to a Trinitarian belief. In fact, as Michael Reeves put it, he said, to know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. Now, that being said, this morning, um, we're going to continue, we're going to look at, at a lot of scripture, okay, not just this Matthew passage, we're going to look at a lot. But I'm also not going to dig into the weeds of Trinitarian heresies that have erupted throughout the years. I will say that those heresies, which very much corrupt both the, the worship and ministry of the church, are important. They, they mess with the entire life and witness of the church, and by implication, the well-being of the world. And as much as I appreciate the devotion of those in the church that Meredith and I went to, or, of, or you know, even of Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll come knock on your door, or Mormons or others. The simple fact is this. They thoroughly misunderstand the nature of God. And therefore, they misunderstand the gospel and salvation. So my desire this morning then is this. As we look at the Trinity, that our hearts would grow that our hearts would grow for the Lord and, and we would be inspired in awe and worship. However, we do so with, with some trepidation this morning. I feel it as one preaching on such a glorious doctrine as the Trinity. This study, as one commentator wrote, imposes on us a huge responsibility and privilege to live godly lives. It is a mystery, as Calvin said, more to be adored than investigated. It is arduous, for we are dealing in matters too great for us, before which we must bow in worship, recognizing our utter inadequacy. So these are great matters. And again, my hope is, is, is just to, to point us to awe and to the worship of God. And I, I will say, before I get going, I am very grateful to Michael Reeves and his teaching and work. Um, if you're not familiar with him, look him up. Uh, his book, Delighting in the Trinity, is, is well worth whatever you pay for it. Um, his teaching has stirred the, my worship for the Lord in a way that, that, that hasn't been stirred on the subject in, in quite some time. I'd previously studied this, you know, I've obviously studied the Trinity and, and things along those lines, but the way Reeves taught struck me. And, and sometimes that works with different teachers, and just what he said did it. So you will hear his influence al along with others this morning. Now, last week was an introduction. Today we start this series on knowing God, and the series is going to essentially follow the flow 
of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four. The question is, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That is going to serve as our basic framework through this series, the Shorter Catechism, question four. And I would highly recommend you to memorize that at some point in time. So God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So this morning, we're actually going to look at the first two words, God is. God is. And we're going to do so actually by going past the question four to questions five and six. Two questions that, that work on the Trinity. And I'm going to ex- attempt to do two things. Explain the Trinity to, to some degree this morning. But more importantly, reveal the Trinity throughout this and give us fodder, as I've said over and over, for worship and awe. So we will have both this morning doctrine and, I hope, devotion. So doctrine and devotion and grow in that this morning. Now, throughout the ages, it seems that there have been attempts to make the Trinity more palatable to our limited understanding. There are analogies. There are analogies about eggs and shamrocks and H2O. Um, And certainly more that I haven't heard. And just so you know, they all fall horribly short. And if you want some entertainment this afternoon when you get home, go on YouTube and Google Lutheran satire, St. Patrick's bad analogies. Just thank me later. Uh, just, you can email me and say, thanks for that. That was fun. But Lutheran satire, St. Patrick's bad analogies. But beyond the fact that these analogies are bad and they espouse heresy, a side effect of things like that, of God being like an egg or being like a shamrock, is that, that the Trinity is seen, when it's seen in this way as some kind of comic or bizarre thing, is there any wonder that we, we seem to ignore it and that it does very little to capture our wonder and awe when we're like, the Trinity is like a shamrock? Wow, that's a God I want to worship, isn't it? It's not how it works. So, so I, I don't want to do that. So this morning, as I seek to explain the Trinity, I'm not going to attempt to make it palatable or to dumb it down for us. I do want to lay a proper foundation of understanding in order that we may readily see the beauty of God. So we're going to turn to our catechism. Question five. Following, obviously, question four. Question five. Are there more gods than one? Simple answer is there is but one only, the living and true God. There is but one only, the living and true God. Last week, we looked at John 17, 3. We saw the phrase, the, the only true God, that they may know you, uh, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We could turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, in thinking about God being one then, the key confession of Israel is probably found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, hear, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema, the, the great confession of Israel. There is one God, yet that is not the entirety of the story. Question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. 
These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, this is more clearly revealed in the New Testament than the Old, but it is pointed to in the Old. And just one example, Genesis 1-2, we encounter the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. In, in 126, God says, let us make man in our image. That's not explicit. It doesn't lay it out perfectly explicit, but it, you can start to see the hints. And there are, there are more throughout the Old Testament, and maybe we'll have time uh, next Sunday evening to go through some of that. But if we turn to the New Testament, it is really all over the place. And I can't deal with them all. One is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is Paul's benediction in that letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You have in all of these, all three in the Godhead, excuse me, listed together. They're there, it's explicit, and, and there's, there's a oneness but a threeness to this as well. Now, throughout Scripture, uh, particularly in the New Testament, the full deity of each is affirmed. I, I'm not going to talk about God the Father, no one really ever disputes that. But Acts 20, 28 um, states, Paul, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, that speaks to the deity of Christ very clearly. But we also have the Holy Spirit, the flock of God, again, picture of the Trinity. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, speaking of Jesus. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember that story, they kept back some of the money, Sapphira dies, Ananias comes in, and, and uh, the apostles say to him, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then just a few sentences a sentence later, you lied to God, equating the Holy Spirit with God, affirming the deity of the Spirit. But then I want us to look at Romans 1. You can turn there if you want. Uh, it would be a good spot to, to turn. We're going to flip to a lot of places. But Romans 1, just the, the beginning of this letter. It's a beautiful letter, and you don't normally think of the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans as Trinitarian but I want you to hear it. We're going to read 1 through 4 and then verse 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then down to verse 7, to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Reeve pulled this out in such a beautiful manner that, 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 again, here's Paul greeting the Roman church, and he does it with a Trinitarian gospel. He's laying out the gospel in a very Trinitarian framework. It's the gospel of God. It's the promise of the Father, what we saw in verse 7. It, it concerns the Son, the eternal Son, who was then declared to be the Son of God in power, in a, in a new way, according to the Spirit of holiness. You see this? The good news... The gospel is Trinitarian. 
It is Trinitarian by nature. It is not possible to have the gospel without a triune God. This illuminates even more clearly why what Meredith and I went to and heard was so strikingly wrong this summer. Fred Sanders, in his work, The Deep Things of God, wrote that when we lose our ability to see the Trinity as directly connected to the gospel, we tend to reduce the the Trinity to an issue of authority and mental obedience. No wonder, then, that the doctrine of the Trinity has been treated uh, as something of a burden by many evangelicals. I don't want it to be a burden. I do not want the Trinity to be a burden to think, oh, I can't understand it, I I can't get to it. When we see it along with the gospel, I think it takes away some of that burdensome nature of it because it's a glorious truth in which we are to rest and glory in. So let's kind of work that out a little bit more. Consider this, John 3.16, okay? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now think about this in terms of the word son. And we've seen this already in Romans 1, but what does son point to? A father. Points to a father, John 14, 6. Jesus said, no one comes to who? To the father except through me. Now, God has always been a father, eternally the father, John 17, 24. Father, this is Jesus praying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Okay? So that they may be with me where I am, in fellowship, that to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So where was God before creation? He was in the fellowship of the Trinity. There was eternally the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Eternally, God has been three in one. And so when we read a phrase like, God is love, in 1 John, that is not just something that God does, but God is love. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest American theologians, wrote, In John, God is love shows that there are more persons than one in the deity. For it shows love to be essential and necessary to the deity, so that his nature consists in it. And this supposes that there is an eternal and necessary object. Because all love respects another, that is, the beloved. By love here, the apostle certainly means something beside that which is commonly called self-love. That is very improperly called love and is a thing of an exceeding diverse nature from that Uh, that affection or virtue of love that the apostle is speaking of. So what he's saying is that God is love. There's the necessity that there's an eternal object of love, that there's the necessity of the Trinity. Okay? A solitary God cannot love. Not from eternity. The God of Islam. How can he be eternally and essentially loving when love includes loving another? One of the central tenets of Islam and one of its biggest beefs with Christianity is the Trinity. That Allah is one and one alone. Allah is simply a ruler, a sovereign. He creates because he's needy, because he needs subjects. There is no word for salvation in Islam. Okay. 
Love involves loving another and loving eternally. The Trinity can do that. You can't do that when you're a solitary God. Allah's love is dependent on creation. The God of Scripture, the Trinity, not so. So what I hope you're beginning to see is, this, is the Trinity a bit more clearly and how it is essential to the gospel. Folks, my job in, in this time, this is not a, a teaching lecture. It's not to convince you or to argue for the Trinity. Fred Sanders gave, I think, great insight. He said, the first step on the way to the heart of the Trinitarian mystery, and it is a mystery, is to recognize that as Christians, we find ourselves already deeply involved in the triune life and need only to reflect rightly on that present reality. Most evangelical Christians don't need to be talked into the Trinitarian theory. Okay, most don't need to be talked into it. They need to be shown that they are immersed already in the Trinitarian reality. We need to see and feel that we are surrounded by the Trinity, compassed about on all sides by the presence and the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So then, folks, let's... We're going to turn now very briefly to, to Matthew 3 and then jump uh, and continue on from there. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, so... Focus here. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So verses 16 and 17 show us the Trinity at work together. We see that the Trinity, and we've already seen this in many ways, that the Trinity fills the pages of Scripture. Here we see that, that love. We see Jesus baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove, rests upon him. The Father declares his love and his pleasure in the Son. Now, in that, we can see some of the inner working of the Trinity and even some of the roles within the Trinity. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to save his people, to save the people whom God the Father had given him. And then the Spirit comes to work in our lives as, as the Spirit rested on him. And, and, and there, there's, a, there's a picture where the Spirit helped him to recognize further the love of God, the Father, for him. So let's see some of that working of the Trinity. So, folks, as the Father declares his love for the Son, like I said, he does so by the Spirit, by the work of the Spirit. Giving his Spirit is the way he makes that love known. And, listen... He does that for us. He does that for us. The work of the Trinity already in our life. Remember, we're trying to show that not just the Trinitarian theory, but we're immersed in the life of the Trinity as believers. Romans 5.5. 5. Let me start with 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see the work of the Holy Spirit there, right? You see how it's similar in some ways to what happened at the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit rested on Jesus, and God's love is declared for him. Here, the Spirit is poured, his love is poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. The Trinity is at work. That's part of the work of the Spirit. Further, Reeves wrote this. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son, and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He makes the Father's love known to the Son, causing him to cry, Abba, something he will also do for us. And let's be clear, that Abba is said with joy. For the Spirit so makes the Father known to the Son that the Son rejoices, Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I hope you, you can hear a bit of what's going on here. Father, Son, and Spirit work in harmony. They work in harmony, as they always have, and they are doing so to bring believers, those called of God, to bring us into fellowship, into the fellowship, into the life of God, into the life of the Trinity, into that fellowship, really into sonship. Okay, John 1.12, everyone who believes, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Sons of God. We, that, that language is everywhere. Listen to the larger catechism. I'm going to the larger catechism just because the answer is so rich and full. Larger catechism, question 74, what is adoption? So adoption is an act of the free grace of God. So it's God's work. It's God's grace in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his Children, not slaves, not subjects, but children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And I love how even in the answer to the catechism, The answer is Trinitarian because it's faithful to Scripture, (laughs) because Scripture is Trinitarian. The work of adoption is Trinitarian. We are all, all believers are admitted to the liberties and privileges of the sons of God. We are called fellow heirs with Christ. He's not ashamed to call us all brothers, all of us. Romans 8, 14, we who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We enter into the same dynamic of relationship with the Father as the eternal Son. That cannot happen. That kind of relationship, being called a son, cannot happen without a Trinitarian God. It cannot happen in a solitary God of Islam. 
It cannot happen in Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism. It cannot happen. It can only happen with a Trinitarian God. And that, 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 that sonship brings us into God's presence. And I think of uh, Psalm 1611. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. We're entering into the fullness of joy of the Godhead. The life of eternal joy in one another. That, that opened up just even that verse to me this week. In your presence there is fullness of joy. So often I just think, oh, I'm in the Lord's presence. But no, I'm in the, I'm in the presence of the Trinity and their love for one another, their eternal joy in one another. Romans 8, 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with who? With Christ, with the Son of God. Folks, there really is so much more we could talk about. We could go on and on with the Trinity. We could spend weeks and months on this topic, but what I hope that you have just at least begun to see, hopefully it's been clear enough that, that, that you could see that, that the Trinity is not only essential, but absolutely glorious and so good for believers. For as Calvin wrote in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he so proclaims himself the sole God as to offer himself to be contemplated clearly in three persons. Unless we grasp these, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. Folks, I want us to see the true God and not have some bare, generic picture of God flitting about in our brains, but actually in our hearts that we see the true and living God, to see him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together, the Father in love, sending the Son, the Son giving himself for us, that we would know the love of the Father, the Spirit working in us, pouring out the love of the Father and helping us to rejoice not only in the Father, but to delight in the Son as well. Listen, the first question of the Shorter Catechism is this. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. You're not going to enjoy a bare, generic God. You can enjoy the triune God who is loved from all eternity within the Godhead and sought to share that love with his creation, with his children, with those he called to himself. We actually enter into the joy of the Master. We enter into that. A stodgy, lonely, singular God does not invite us into any kind of enjoyment. That kind of God invites us to do things for him. God came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So we are, we, we, we are invited and brought into the happiness of God. The God who, as Edwards again wrote, is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself, in perfectly beholding and infinitely loving and rejoicing in his own essence and perfections. And, I'll add, who is so delighted to call us, to call those who have turned to him, who have repented and believed to call us his own, because in love, in love, he sent his son and works in us that we may enter into the joy of our triune God for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, work in us. May we see the beauty of who you are. Open our eyes, not just today to see more clearly the working of the Trinity, but as we continue through this series to see your infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You are the God who is eternal who is so good, who does not need us, but yet in love, you sent the Son to die for us, that we might know your love and joy and forgiveness and grace, and your Spirit to be in us, that we would know it even more clearly, and that we would grow in conformity, that we would be called sons of God. Lord, any who do not know you here this morning, would you draw them to yourself that they would know what it means to be a son of God, that they would be able to enter into that joy. Father, be at work. Be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.